0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is John Huggins. I'm the chaplain at Berry College. And I'm uh, <clears throat> privileged to be able to share with you this morning, uh, as Brian asked me to preach for him. As you're finding your seat, so I'll tell you something real quick. Um, a few weeks ago, my daughters put together, my, Ab- Abigail and Ava, they put together a little worship service for our family. And as part of the worship service, uh, Abigail created a PowerPoint. For the announcements. And, of course, they started with connection cards. It included a a meal in the great room, as well as, like, a coat drive, you know, we're going to dig some wells, you know, things like that. And then they were also careful to say, you are not here by accident. (laughs) God has a reason for you being here this morning. And perhaps the best part for me was that, that not only did my daughter Ava preach a sermon, She also led communion and, by memory, almost got the words of institution just right. This is my body. This is my blood. I mean, it was fantastic. So if if something happens to me this morning, I kill over, don't worry. Just go get Ava. She'll come up here. She'll finish this thing for us. All right, hopefully you're seated now. (laughs) Uh, today is the second Sunday of Easter in the Western Church. Uh, for the Eastern Orthodox Church, this is actually the East, East Easter Sunday, so they're celebrating the Resurrection, and uh, in full celebration mode, as we ought to every Sunday. Um, one of the things I thought of when Dr. Carroll was sharing his testimony this morning is that a couple of weeks ago I got to have dinner with, uh, sit at a dinner table with Justo Gonzalez who's a world-famous church historian. And he's not only written histories of the church, but also history of Christian thinking. And we were talking about Easter, and we were talking about how the, some of the early Christians, and even still today, many Christians have uh, midnight services on Easter Day. And that's often when baptisms happen. So people are being, identifying with Christ in His death and resurrection uh, on, that, on that day. And one of the things he said that struck me as profound when he said it was that he said they did this at midnight in the dark he says because jesus always comes when things are dark and then leads us out of darkness into light <clears throat> and it made me think of jesus meeting you when things were dark <clears throat> to bring you out into his light you know easter is the reason why we worship on sunday because it's the day of the resurrection um Professor M.T. Wright has said that we should party ten times as much on Easter as we do on Christmas because this is the, this is the main event. This is when, all the, when the new things start coming, when redemption starts being implemented into the world, the new life, new creation has begun now. There are so many different things one might say about uh, Easter I want to focus on a couple of particular things here uh, in just a moment. Uh, first of all, I just want to say a couple of things about what the resurrection of Jesus meant. You know, the cross and resurrection go together in Scripture, and sometimes we're good at cross, thinking about the death of Jesus, as we should, but not always so great at understanding the purpose of the resurrection. Like, What's this for? What's it supposed to mean for us? What does it mean to say we worship a risen Savior. And this is really the heart of the gospel in the New Testament. And when you read through the way that the apostles preached the gospel, say in the book of Acts, they often are focusing on the resurrection. Uh, It draws scorn sometimes because it's a crazy thing to believe dead people can come back to life, even back then. But it is the heart of the gospel that Jesus is the world's true Lord, He is the risen and reigning Lord. And as a result of his resurrection, there's been a victory. Like something has happened actually in the spiritual world. Something has happened in the cosmos that will affect the whole physical world. There's been a victory over all earthly powers and spiritual powers, powers of death, hell, Satan, and sin. The resurrection proclaims that Jesus reigns and not those things. And therefore, darkness and suffering do not get the last word on our situation, Jesus gets the last word, and it's a word of life. The resurrection is also the ultimate vindication of Jesus. Is He really who He said He was? Here He is, the risen and reigning Lord. Did God really abandon Him on the cross? The resurrection is a vindication of God the Father as well. He did not abandon Him. It's the first fruits of the new heavens and the new earth. What God has promised to do for all of us at the end of time, he is done for Jesus in the middle of time, raising him from the dead, which means that that new era has already dawned upon us. The world will one day be reborn rather than thrown away, and so our lives in this world matter. Jesus' resurrection means that there, a cosmic redemption has been accomplished, and now it's the vocation of the church of Christians to implement that victory into all spheres of life, to bring Jesus' own redeeming life and power into our relationships, into our own thinking, feeling, and acting, and into our different social <clears throat> uh, areas of influence. Another thing about the resurrection is it, it ensures that we who are connected to Jesus will also be resurrected to life. In Romans 6, 5, it says, "...since we have been united with him in his death..." We will also be raised to life as he was. When we see Jesus, we see a a preview of the future. When we think about the new creation, a lot of it's unclear. A lot of it's uncertain what the world will be like when Jesus returns. It's like looking into a mist. But someone's come out of that mist and walked towards us to say this is what it's like. That person is Jesus. But not only will it affect our future, the Bible says that his resurrection actually affects us now in some way. In Ephesians 2, it says, For he raised us from the dead along with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. As if to say in the spirit, our identity, the place where we belong, is already with Christ in heaven. Well, when you think about this story, it's really an amazing story. It's a unique story. Among all the uh, uh, stories that the world tells, religious or otherwise, this victory over the ultimate forces of death, hell, and suffering, and we wonder sometimes, is it too good to be true? Uh, And if it is true, we think, if that were true, it would really be worth giving your life to it. Uh, If Jesus really was who He said He was, did what He said He did, then certainly He's got to be the most important person that there is. And His call to follow Him is the ultimate human vocation and the thing that we must all be sure to say yes to, to embrace. It's worth getting out of bed for in the morning, every morning, giving ourselves to. But what if when you read about, when you think about the gospel and you think about the work of God in the world, have you ever thought, it sounds really good? But I'm not sure if it's for me. I mean, what if um, I'm not educated enough, really, to be used by God in any significant way, to be a part of that implementing the resurrection thing I was just talking about? Or what if I'm too bound by sins from the past or even the present? Or what if my doubts, the doubts I struggle with, would keep me from really experiencing God in a deep way? Are my present failures? I mean, I know what's right and wrong and still keep choosing what's wrong. I still keep falling. How will Jesus respond to me? Is there any response or am I alone? It's a key question I want to ask as I look at uh, a passage in John chapter 20 and 21. This is the moment of Jesus' resurrection, and I want to focus on the people that he appeared to in his resurrection. And I want to look at those for a certain reason. Now, John, the writer of this gospel, has told us that Jesus did lots of other things that he didn't tell us about, because there wouldn't be enough room with all the books in the world to tell us about everything Jesus did. So if that's true, that means he is selecting certain things to tell us about, and that the things he's choosing to tell us about, he's telling us us about on purpose. So when you read John's gospel and you're thinking, Jesus actually did more than this, why is John telling me about this particular thing? It must bear some real significance. And there's three individuals that Jesus appears to after his resurrection uh, that serve as pretty powerful encounters. Uh, I want to look at those three personal encounters as well as his uh, appearance to the group of disciples. So we're going to read that text in just a moment. But I want you to read it, not just to understand, I want you to hear it, not just to understand the text, but also to have this question in mind. Have you ever felt that something about you, either your past sins or your current struggles and doubts, would either keep you from experiencing God's favor, grace, in any deep way, or at least keep you from being used by Him in any significant way? Let me ask the question again. You ever thought that something about you, either past sins, present struggles and doubts, would either keep you from having God's favor or blessing in a deep way, or at least keep you from being used by God in any significant way. If you have ever felt that, and my sense is that many people do, then there's good news for you in this passage. So let's pay attention to the account encounters as I read them. It's a good bit of text, but, you know, we can all do with a little more Bible in our lives. So I'm going to read from... John chapter 20, and then a section from chapter 21. This first part in chapter 20 is on Easter morning, that first day when Jesus appears to the first people. And the first people he appears to in all four Gospels are the women followers. And Mark and John's Gospel are explicit that Mary Magdalene is the first person to see the resurrected Jesus. Here's hitting the start with verse 11. But Mary, this Mary Magdalene, stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lain, one at the head and one at the feet. <clears throat> they said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping?' She said to him, to them, "'They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him.' Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking?' Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, and he's, she's embracing him, and he's essentially saying, There's no need to cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. The reply is, And also with you, right? No, i peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Skipping over to 21, the third time Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection is when they're fishing, they're not catching anything. He says, throw the net on the other side. They've done this before. Peter recognizes him. Well, John recognizes him first. Then Peter jumps in the water to go meet him. When they arrive, Jesus has prepared breakfast for them. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Please open our eyes to your divine mercy. And may it capture our imagination, our wills, our affection, our energy. In Christ's name, amen. So we just read about these encounters Jesus has with some people as He's resurrected. The first one is with Mary. Let's say, let's look at that one for a second. So Mary Magdalene's an interesting figure, right? Um, we don't know all that much about her, but it's interesting that she's the first eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus, and that that's emphasized in the gospel that women were the first to see the resurrected Jesus, and Mary herself being identified in those two gospels. Some of you may have heard before that if this was a story you were making up and wanted people to believe it, you would not have made women the first eyewitnesses, the first ones to tell this story in the ancient world, because in that culture, a woman's testimony was considered suspect uh, and unacceptable even in a court of law. So why would this be happening here. Jesus is the great leveler in many ways. And here he is, almost as if she's chosen on purpose to be what St. Augustine called the apostle to the apostles. That is, she was sent by Jesus to his 12 to say, you've seen me now go and tell them. The first person to get that go and tell commission. But what was her background? Uh, The gospel of Luke tells us that she had at one time had seven demons cast out from her. Now, we don't really experience too much of that in our own culture, but I think if you did know someone from whom seven demons have been cast out, you might be tempted to think that the person was not necessarily stable or uh, maybe that had to have some sort of effect on them, maybe some lasting effect that was damaging and, you know, you might, your heart might go out to them, but you wouldn't be sure necessarily about them. Maybe they're unfit. There's even been questions about her character, whether or not she may have been a prostitute before becoming a follower of Jesus. We don't know. And then there's that level of intimacy that she seems to have along with the other uh, male disciples that 's crossing social barriers transgressing cultural norms uh, so much so obviously that popular imaginations run away with that you know and speculated about Mary Magdalene being jesus you know, secret wife and, you know and all that other baloney but you know it 's like they just can 't handle that Jesus could have had a close female friend you know it's, um, but she is close to him and clearly loves. Him. She is there at the cross when Jesus is crucified along with Jesus' mother and here is eager to get to the tomb. The interesting thing about the encounter is that at first she doesn't recognize Jesus. And that's another thing that happens in all the gospels. Is that Jesus is at first not recognizable or something, some new quality to his life. And of course, those who had seen him last had seen him in distress or beaten to death. And now here, here he is in renewed and so she thinks he's the gardener and all of that until Jesus speaks to her and calls her by name. This is a really great moment in the text because Jesus says to her, Mary Now for us that just sounds like, yeah, he says her name. But he actually says her name in Aramaic, which is the name Miriam. Now every time the Greek text translates her name, it translates it as Maria, because that's how you say Mary in Greek. But in this one moment, the text actually preserves the Aramaic and has the word Miriam in Greek. It's a transliteration from Hebrew into Greek, as if it's on purpose. This is significant. It's just like the thing, just like where he told us at the beginning of chapter 20 that this was the first day of the week. And then later on, when Jesus appeared again, it was the first day of the week. All that stuff is significant. What's significant about calling her Miriam? Well, have you ever noticed that there's lots of Marys in the New Testament? You can't even keep up with them all, is it? Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary the mother of so-and-so and and -and so-and-so else, and then Mary Magdalene. What's up with that? Uh, Mary was a popular name because it's based on the, uh, the name of Moses' sister, Miriam. So in the Old Testament, God's great act of redemption is the Exodus. It's always looked back to, even when you get to the Psalms, as this is how we know God is for us, this is how we know God is powerful, is because of that thing He did. We know God is a Redeemer because of that thing He did. And if you remember in the story, right after the Exodus, after the crossing of the Red Sea, it's Miriam who takes up her tambourine and starts dancing around, celebrating, and singing a song to God. And here, after God's great act of redemption the thing that makes us know that God is for us, the thing that makes us know that God is powerful, the thing that makes us know that God is a redeemer. Here is Miriam again, and she gets to celebrate the resurrected Jesus. And I think when you look at her story, no matter what your background might be, past sins, failures, struggles, you too can come and join in her celebration. Jesus is for you and powerful and a redeemer. In the next section, Jesus appears to the 12 disciples, <clears throat> all of whom had, uh, had run and abandoned him, except for possibly John <clears throat> in the Garden of Gethsemane. But when Jesus greets them, he's not like, hey, suckers, you know, uh, or something like that. He says, peace be with you. <clears throat> He speaks peace. Jesus Jesus is just so much bigger. Thank God. Jesus is so much bigger. He can transcend our failures, our offenses. We can rise above those things, rise above being offended to meeting them with love. Our sins are no match for he says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, and then the great, this great commission to them is, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. In other words, not only do I have a word of peace for you, I have a job for you. I'm calling you guys into my mission. In other words, through you guys, the world is going to come to know what I'm like and come to know my story. And if you've paid attention to the Gospels, and you might think, really? Like, through these people, um, We're going to get to know who Jesus is, what Jesus is like, evidently, yes. He breathes on them saying, receive the Holy Spirit, which is another wonderful part of the text because it, it, it echoes the Genesis 2 account of God creating Adam and then breathing the breath of life into him. And here Jesus is breathing on them the breath of new life so that they are empowered to do the thing God wants them to do. But Thomas wasn't there, right? Thomas. Forever known to us as Doubting Thomas, right? (laughs) Then he had a different nickname uh, called the twin, either because he was a twin uh, or because he looked like Jesus or something, different uh, speculations on that. But he wasn't there. And so it's a full week later, but again, it's on Sunday. It's on the first day of the week that Jesus appears to his people when they're gathered. Do you love that? (laughs) Jesus appears to his people when they're gathered on the first day of the week and this time Thomas is there with him, and he again greets him with, Peace be with you, and then goes over to Thomas, so full of his doubt. I mean, we can totally respect what what he's going through, can't we? A part of us, he's skeptical, he's cynical, he's saying what you're saying is impossible, that Jesus is back from the dead. And it's as if Jesus goes over to him and meets him where he's at, right there in the middle of his doubts and struggles, and says, Here you go, Put, put your hand right here put your hands in my wounds. There's a word of rebuke there, but it's all done in love. He's saying, uh, don't disbelieve, but believe. And then Thomas makes the great confession, my Lord and my God. That's what we ought to remember Thomas for, my Lord and my God, and imitate his faith. I love this because it seems that What's the point of John telling us about this story to show us that, okay, some, even of his closest followers, doubted the reality of this thing, so surely other people might struggle with doubt too. And Jesus was willing to condescend to Thomas' doubts and shepherd him through coming to a great confession of faith. And if your heart is willing, I believe that Jesus will also shepherd you through struggles with doubt uncertainty to come to a confession of faith. The last one I want to uh, highlight is his encounter with Peter. and Don't you love this passage? Our beloved fearful leader, (laughs) Peter. But the last time we've seen Peter in the gospel, he's denying that he knows his best friend, to a servant girl at one point, to others, even calling a curse down. Uh, It's like the ultimate betrayal. There's something in us that should want to weep bitterly when Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. After the rooster crows three times and he realizes what he's done, he's denied. He did exactly what Jesus said he would do. He denied him three times. And Peter, he thought he was wholehearted. He thought he was a truly devoted disciple. In his mind, he could not fall. You ever felt like that? And then all of a sudden, when it was tried and tested, he did fail. If you've ever been in that position, you know the kind of shame that can come upon you when you think, I I know better than this. I thought I was better and stronger than this. How could I have? betrayed my Lord, my faith, everything I believe in. That's a a lot of shame to carry. Not only that, there's the shame of just denying your best friend that he probably carried with him. And then beyond that, what if it's echoing in Peter's mind, that time when Jesus said, anyone who's ashamed of me in front of men, I will also deny before the Father. What if Peter's thinking about that? And then he's probably scared. You know, what's up? Shame and fear. And so when Jesus takes him along to have this private conversation with him, you know, you can imagine Peter sort of walking along with his head down, thinking, what's he going to say to me? How do I, how do we deal with this space between us? Try to imagine, put yourself in the moment. And then to have Jesus ask him this question. Do you love me? It's like, ouch. he asked him the question three times, and most theologians and scholars have seen a kind of uh, three times asking the question to account for three denials as a way of restoration. What's interesting about, there's two things I want to point out about this, the question and answer. The first thing is that uh, Peter is not answering the question that Jesus is asking, So there's actually two different words for love being used in the Greek text. And I'll just say this briefly. Uh, so, so Jesus is asking him, uh, Simon, that's his, you know, his, his, not his nickname but his given name, uh, do you love me? He says it's a, the agape love word. Uh, and as you probably know, the agape love word is that kind of self-sacrificial love that God both gives and commands from us. Peter responds with saying, I phileo love you, which is still an authentic kind of love, but it's a brotherly sort of affection, not the self-sacrificial type. And you got to imagine, you know, when Jesus asked the question, Peter knows that Jesus knows him. Peter knows that Jesus knows what he's done. So it's not as if he's going to try to pretend and say, yeah, I love you in a self-sacrificial way. It's like, look how well I just did at that so he is honest as far as he knows how but it's not the question jesus is asking in fact when it gets to the third time jesus asks, jesus actually changes his own question and just says peter do you phileo love me do you have a brotherly affection for me and that's why it says that the that peter was grieved the third time when jesus asked him the question this way and he responds yes i phileo love you but the other thing that's interesting is that after each answer Jesus tells him to do something. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. He keeps giving him this call, this vocation. There's something I want you to do, Peter. And Peter might be thinking, yeah, but look at me. I'm not, as, I'm not strong at all. I can't even answer the question you're answering. I mean, you're asking, so how am I supposed to feed the lambs and tend the sheep and all that stuff? It's as if I, I, the way that I think the text is unfolding is that... Uh, Jesus is saying, Peter, I know that you are not where you want to be. I know that you're not where I want you to be. But that doesn't mean I'm putting you on the shelf until you get your act together. It doesn't mean that you're on the reserved, you know, uh, injured list until you get all this stuff sorted out. Until your heart is right before I'm going to use you. In fact, in the meantime, while we work on your heart and mind... I want you to be feeding my sheep and tending my lambs, taking care of my people. <clears throat> God is willing to use him in his less than ideal condition. Now, one of the things he says to him is he says that one day he makes a re- that weird reference to the way that Peter is going to die, right? It's like, what's up with that? It seems to be a, a way of saying one day you'll have the opportunity to show the kind of agape love that I'm talking about here, and you're going to do it. Your heart's going to be there. In the meantime, we've got work to do. This encourages the mess out of me. Because I think maybe that means that Jesus would come to us in our less than perfect condition and say, I know what's up with you, but you don't have to have it all together. (laughs) You don't have to have your doubts straightened out. You don't have to have your life and your heart all worked out. In the meantime, I want you to be following me. And that actually is the ultimate call. The way that that passage wraps up, <clears throat> the last part that I read there was he says, <clears throat> Jesus says to him, follow me. This is the ultimate human vocation. Jesus is calling out to us saying, in all of your past failure, your present failure and struggle, I'm calling you to rise up and follow me. That's, what's, that's what matters. <clears throat> when you look at the text, I want you to have a sense of God's mercy. You know, every one of us can only hope in the mercy of God. None of us can hope or rely upon our own goodness or lack of badness. The New Testament says that we should set our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us when Christ appears. Set our hope fully on that. We are all desperate for God's mercy. But notice that along with God's mercy comes this call to join Him. Not only to follow Him, like in terms of a private spirituality, but to join Him in His mission to the world. To do the work He wants us doing here and now in all of our brokenness and imperfection. You can still, as an imperfect and broken and mending person, have joy. <clears throat> Have peace in the love of God. <laughs> know that your point, the point of walking around and following Jesus is not to walk around saying, Hey, look at us. Look at us. We are good and right people. Uh, it's about saying, We're following this person. He's the good and right one. And uh, we're just calling you all to come join us in following him. He is the one, the risen, reigning Lord. He's the one who brings hope, peace, and joy to the world, who's calling out for us to follow him. Let me just wrap up by saying, um, I would like for this Easter season for myself, and maybe it needs to be so for you, to be a kind of new beginning, a kind of new start. Perhaps in your life, you've just been kind of waffling along, or lukewarmly kind of passing through life, and you do have struggles and doubts and failures, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this stuff. Jesus probably doesn't know what to do with me. Um... So, I just keep going. But Jesus is in the redemption business, and you can always begin again with Him. So, no matter what the year's been like for you so far, you can begin again with Jesus today, right now. You can hear the call of Jesus saying, rise up, come follow me. And if you do, if you go to Christ he will not be angry with you. There is no more wrath of God to be uh, spent on us <clears throat> if the cross has taken it away. Not only will he not be angry, he will give you the Holy Spirit. He will lead you on the path of life. If that's not true, <clears throat> then what's up with these, these, these experiences these people had with the resurrected Jesus? One who reaches out in mercy, forgives their sin, and calls them along. So it could be that maybe it's for the first time in your life or perhaps after many times, after many struggles or having walked away, you hear the call of Jesus again saying, follow me. <clears throat> in the next few moments, we have the opportunity to tell the Lord again, yes, Lord, in spite of all of this and all of me, I will follow you. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Lord, to pray that this Easter season Easter Day would be a special resurrection day for every one of us, a day of coming to life again, of realizing that your mercy must be true for us, all of us, and that we would long to follow Jesus. Please help each one of us to hear the call in our hearts, to see with our mind's eye you and your mercy with arms out wide saying, come follow me.